recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, ChrisTagania.org. Today is Friday, February 8th, 2013. Sorry about that. Forgot to shut the queue off. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. This is Chris DeGenier on TalkShoe. I did a program with um, John Friend, The Realist Report, on Monday night. And um, basically expounded history from the point of view of the classical and biblical records for two hours. That seems to be what I do best, maybe. I, I, I like to think, anyway. Of course, there were a few callers who were um, adversarial to my message or to me personally, and it, it amazes me that all my adversaries ever have are ad hominem attacks, whether they're on my past, which I am not at all ashamed of, or on my character, but they can never address me on the meat of my message. They could never address my interpretation of Scripture, not to my face. Maybe they could go sneak around on their little blogs and, and post nasty comments. Their true colors always show. Their fruits always show. I try not to address these people personally because it gives them credibility. I would rather have honest and edifying discourse. Of course, Satan doesn't want that. And every time my enemies attack me personally, they only show their own fruits. Give it up. Tonight I'm going to present the Prophecy of Amos Part 2, something we began last week, right? The Prophecy of Amos begins with oracles against both Israel and Judah, and also against the Edomites, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and certain of their cities. I left out the Philistines. In the first segment of our presentation of the book of Amos, we began to discuss the fates of these places and presented much of what can be seen of these things from ancient Assyrian inscriptions. This helps to demonstrate that the biblical account of the history of this period certainly is true. It helps to demonstrate that the, um, that the school of biblical minimalists, as they're called, in Jewish academia are all frauds. They are all frauds. The biblical minimalists tend to believe and they have far too loud a voice. They tend to believe that um, a scribe named Ezra basically invented all the stories of the Old Testament in order to solidify and unify the people of Judea against the Persians and, and various other groups in the 4th or 5th centuries B.C. That's amazing in light of the archaeology and the Assyrian inscriptions and, and the, the Sumerian and, and all the other inscriptions, in fact. that, that um, The Persian inscriptions especially. That's amazing that clowns like that can be given such large budgets and such a voice in modern academia. And, and it shows how dishonest academia is. It shows how dishonest our universities are when biblical minimalists or Afrocentrists 
get seats and loud voices and large budgets in, 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 in our educational institutions. Satan has to be in control of this world. There's no other explanation for how that could be. That education is simply and unabashedly politicized. That's incredible to me. I, I, I mean, it would be incredible, I guess, to any honest man. It, it's, it's all a grand charade. And anyone who puts too much stock in the material things of this world could have absolutely no hope in this world. We only have hope in Yahshua Christ because only he can save us from this damned mess. The biblical account of the history of the Old Testament period certainly is true. It certainly is supported by many of the things which men have dug out of the ground in that hellhole called Mesopotamia. It's become a hellhole. That, too, is a judgment from God. Go read the oracles against Persia and against Assyria and against Babylon, and it's quite obvious that the Arabs, sitting in a desert, scratching the fleas out of their asses, are a curse from God. There's no doubt. Here we shall repeat these oracles against Damascus and against Gaza, which were given by Amos. I'm going to go back over a few things, not to repeat anything that I said last week, but to complement it. And continue with our theme from last week. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Historical characters. Characters mentioned quite often in the Assyrian inscriptions, and we presented them last week. I will break also the bar of Damascus, And cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon. And give him that holds the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Kir, saith Yahweh. And indeed they did. In part one of this presentation, we spoke of Kir at length, but not about Avon or Eden. Avon is from a Hebrew word meaning vanity. And the high places of Avon is a term describing the centers of idolatry at Hosea 10. Chapter 10, verse 8. The house of Eden, or Beth Eden, seems only to mean house of pleasure. And in some commentaries, it is considered to be such an allegory. However, there is a place in ancient Syria, of which I find one mention in the inscriptions, which was called Bit Adini. It is mentioned in an inscription of Asher Nasir Pal II, who ruled Assyria from 883 to 859 BC. It was in Upper Syria near the Euphrates River. As we had explained, 
in part one of this presentation, it is recorded in the Assyrian inscriptions that many Syrians were indeed taken into captivity at the time of the Assyrian invasions of Palestine. And that the Assyrian inscriptions, and I quote my presentation from last week, describe many of the prisoners taken away by the Assyrians at this time and says that 592 towns of the 16 districts of Damascus were destroyed. This was from an inscription of Sargon II, but it only mentions the destruction of the outlying towns and not the city itself. Jeremiah chapter 49 again prophecies against Damascus. Concerning Damascus, Hamath is confounded and Arpad, for they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted. There is sorrow on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus is waxed feeble and turns herself to flee, and fear has seized on her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as a woman in travail. How is the city of praise not left? The city of my joy. Therefore her young men shall fall in the streets, and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Note here in these words in Jeremiah that Yahweh says of Damascus in verse 25, How is the city of praise not left, the city of my joy? In the first part of this presentation, we established that Damascus, the city of Aram, was a part of David's empire and was ruled over by David's sons. Elijah the prophet was sent to anoint Haziel as king in Damascus. Of course, that was long after David had passed. Damascus figures prominently in the temple vision of Ezekiel and is mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 47 and 48. The people of Damascus were punished because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. This seems to be a reference to the events described in 2 Kings chapter 13, when Haziel, the future king of Syria, was sent to meet Elisha the prophet. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 8, and I read from verse 12. And Haziel said, Why weepeth my lord? Speaking to the prophet. And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. Exactly what Damascus is being chastised for here in Amos. Haziel was set over as king over Damascus to be a scourge to the children of Israel, to be their punishment. Later, when Syria made war with Israel in the days of Jehoahaz, we read in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 7, neither did he leave of the people to Jehoahaz but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. This seems to describe a very cruel act on a part of the Syrians, and it surely is the reason for the words of Amos that they threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. 
Before the time of Sargon II, Jeroboam II had recovered Damascus for Israel, as it is described in 2 Kings chapter 14, during which time Amos was giving his prophecy. Amos chapter 1, verse 6. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. We're going to focus on that line tonight. But I will send a fire on a wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. And I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith Yahweh God. It's interesting that we have all these oracles against these various nations in the Middle East. And Christians today can still be tricked into thinking that those people in the Middle East are the people of the book, the descendants of the people of the book. In reality, all those Arab bastards in the Middle East are a curse. The people of the book were white. The Arab bastards are the outcome of these punishments. Why don't people open their eyes and see that? It's amazing to me. These Arab bastards are the outcome of these punishments upon the formerly white nations surrounding the children of Israel. The Arab bastards are a curse from God. Their very existence is a violation of his law and a curse from God. We shouldn't even be accepting them as people. Seeing all of these promised punishments and that these Arabs are the, the, the result of that. Well, where it says that demons shall dwell in various cities, that unclean birds shall settle in various places, and all those such, such sayings like that we find in the Bible. And we look at these other races and we give them credibility. They're the demons and the unclean birds that were promised as, as a result of our punishment. It's amazing to me that people don't see that. In the first part of this presentation, we also, we also discussed Gaza, where it appeared in the Assyrian inscriptions and in that it was a tributary to Assyria. Yet there is no record of the fulfillment of Amos' prophecy concerning Gaza before the time of Jeremiah, who in chapter 47 of his prophecy gives an oracle against Gaza again. The word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines before that Pharaoh smote Gaza. That's when this was fulfilled, this oracle of, of Amos. Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, waters rise up out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood and shall overflow the land and all that is therein. The city and them that dwell therein, then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. At the noise of the stamping of the hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of his chariots, and at the rumbling of his wheels. 
The fathers shall not look back to their children for feebleness of hands. Because of the day that comes to spoil all the Philistines, and to cut off from Tyrus and Sidon every helper that remains. For Yahweh will spoil the Philistines, the Arabs had resolved. The remnant of the country of Cathor, baldness has come upon Gaza, Ashkelon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long wilt thou cut thyself? O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be ere thou be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet? Seeing Yahweh has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore. There has he appointed it. Both Ashdod, whose kings of this period were named Yomani and Azuri, and Ashkelon, and, and I'll get back to Yomani later, and Ashkelon were subject to Sargon too during this period. Ancient Near Eastern Texts, pages 283 to 286. While Ekron is not mentioned in those of his inscriptions which survive, Ekron was subject to Sennacherib, his successor. Gaza would be punished because they carried away the whole captivity captive to deliver them up to Edom. This may refer to one or more of several circumstances. In Joel chapter 3, verse 4, it is evident that the word Palestine should have been more properly rendered as Philistia, the land of the Philistines. The word Palestine was a Greek word that had a much wider connotation than the Hebrew word which was used to describe the land of the Philistines to the Israelites. Yahweh God says at that passage, at Joel chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Yeah, and what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Palestine, or Philistia, which is how it should be read? Will you render me a recompense? And if you recompense me, Swiftly and speedily will I return your recompense upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried into your temples my goodly pleasant things. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold unto the Grecians, that you might remove them far from their border. That word Grecians. And that passage stands for Ionians. Grecians is another unfortunate translation. There were several tribes that later became the Greeks. The Dorians and Danans indeed were the children of Israel. The Ionians are different. They are Japhethites. They are descended from the Javan of Genesis chapter 10. The Persian word for Ionians is the bridge which proves the contention. The Persian word, wherever we see the Ionians appearing in Persian history on their inscriptions, the Persian word is Yavana, the same word that we see in the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 10, transliterated by the King James translators as Javan. 
Although the Bible distinguishes, and this is important to understand, the Bible distinguishes the people of Tyre and Sidon and the Philippines and the Philistines, I'm sorry, the Greeks did not distinguish them. They were all Phoenicians to the Greeks. A Phoenician was really a geographical description. And many of the ancient Greek poets and historians relate how the Phoenicians were very actively engaged in the slave trade. In fact, if we read Herodotus, Herodotus, in the openings of his histories, actually finds a way to blame the entire Trojan War and the Persian Wars and all the wars between the East and the West, which resulted on the Phoenician slave trade. Here we see the Philistines are admonished for that reason. And we shall also see as much in the subsequent passages in Amos of the Tyrians. It also must be noted that it is quite plausible that the Assyrians under Sennacherib, having put down a revolt by the Philistines immediately before they went on to conquer the 46 fence cities of Judah, armies raised in Philistia must have been must have in turn been employed as Assyrian allies against Judah. Verse 9, Amos chapter 1. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. Those words, both of those phrases will be focused on here. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Tyre, Tyre is a city, it's not a nation. In Amos, we are at a point in history, during the life of Amos, where the empire of David had become quite fractured. And we had discussed that at length in the first part of this presentation. The Tyrians are not Philistines, or they would have been included in the previous admonition to the Philistines. How could the Tyrians remember not the brotherly covenant? Be distinguished from the Philistines, of course, because the Philistines aren't brethren to the Israelites. And also be distinguished from Edom, who, although his offspring were Canaanite bastards, was nevertheless Jacob's brother. So the Phoenicians of Tyre are not Philistines, and they are not Edomites. Yet they remembered not the brotherly covenant. How could that be? Unless, of course, they were of the children of Israel. It can be established from the historical portions of the Old Testament and from the histories of Josephus and from the words of the prophets as they are found in the Septuagint that the Tyrians were indeed Israelites. 
in the paper of Christogenia, entitled Classical and Biblical Records Identifying the Phoenicians. We read, and I quote my own paper, Concerning the prophecies which forecast the destruction of Israel and the Assyrian deportations, we find two mentions of Tyre, which are wanting in the authorized version, meaning the King James. At Amos 3.11, where the authorized version states, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, the Septuagint has a less ambiguous statement, O Tyre! Thy land shall be made desolate round about thee. The rest of the verse agreeing, except that the Septuagint has countries where the AV has palaces. Of course, we'll be discussing this passage as we present that section of Amos in the coming weeks. The admonition is against the children of Israel. Micah, chapter 7, verse 12, in the Septuagint reads, And thy city... shall be leveled and parted among the, among the Assyrians. Another warning of the coming Assyrian deportations of the children of Israel, which was made in the 8th century B.C. And thy city shall be leveled and parted among the Assyrians. And thy strong city shall be parted from Tyre to the river, meaning the Jordan, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. It can be established that Tyre and the other Phoenician cities belonged to the tribe of Asher. They were firmly in Asher's territory. But those cities were also populated by others of the northern tribes of Israel, men of Dan and Gad and Zebulun and Naphtali. As Deborah, the prophetess, sang in Judges chapter 5, verse 17, Gilead abode beyond Jordan, and why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. That word in Judges 5, 17, rendered breaches in the King James Version. Another unfortunate mistranslation in the King James Version refers to an inlet or to a landing place for boats. It means a port. Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his ports. When you look at Bible maps, in spite of the description of the land of the children of Asher, which is made in the book of Joshua, which clearly puts the cities of Tyre and Sidon in the territory of the children of Asher. In spite of that, when you look at these Bible maps produced by these damn Jew publishing companies, I don't care what Bible you open up, go ahead and do it. You'll find a strip of land separating the territory of Asher from the sea, and it'll be labeled Phoenicia. And that, that is a terrible Jewish lie. Because that strip of land, according to the prophetess Deborah in Judges 5, verse 17, that strip of land was fully occupied by the children of the tribe of Asher. She's actually singing that that's where Asher was. 
on the coast in the ports, tens of thousands of the children of Asher on the coast in the ports, not 20 miles from the coast. The Jews have to maintain that lie. They have no choice but to maintain that lie if you want to believe that the Jews are the children of Israel, which is a lie. The proper identification of the Phoenicians as the northern tribes of Israel raises the, to question the identity of the Jews, who were definitely not Israel. They never have been Israel. The ancient oracles, the ancient writings concerning the Phoenicians describe fair and blonde people, very skilled mariners. Very skilled mariners, contrary to anything we've ever seen of the Jews, if the Phoenicians were bankers, I might believe they were Jews. If they were gamblers and pimps and, and whoremasters and rum runners, well, maybe some of them were rum runners. I might believe they were Jews. If they were panderers and Shylocks, then I would definitely believe they were Jews. Actually, they were great colonists of the Western world. And they were anything but Jews. It's amazing how Christians deny their own Bibles. Tyre, along with the other Phoenician cities of Palestine, such as Arvad, Sidon, and Byblos, these cities were under tribute. Remember, the empire of David was fractured. The, the children of Israel were divided. It, wasn't, it, it was two main bodies. There's no doubt Israel and Judah, but there was more going on on the periphery than... than, than then that part of the core story, yes, there were the two tribes, two and a half tribes, and, and, and the ten and a half tribes, or, 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 yeah, right, you get what I mean. Yes, there were the two tribes and the ten tribes as they were, uh, are commonly divided, no doubt. Judah and Benjamin and, and part of Levi and the rest of the tribes in in, in with their capital in Samaria. There's no doubt, but there are other divisions that we don't see in the Bible. Remember the children of Israel were, were, were promised they were promised blindness and they were promised all the way back to the time of David that they would move. They would move again and, and not move anymore after they were removed from Palestine. Well, the Phoenicians of Tyre were a big part of that movement because according to the historian Herodotus, all of the Phoenician colonies throughout the Mediterranean came from Tyre, not from Sidon. They came from Tyre. When we study the book of Judges and the book of Joshua, and we see where the Canaanites were left, what cities of Asher the Canaanites were left, what were left in? Tyre is not one of those cities. There were still some Canaanites in Sidon, but not in Tyre. So, so there are some things in. There are some things in history, in, in this biblical history, that, that are very plain, and, and yet Christians don't see them. 
and it's incredible. They'd rather look at that stupid little Bible map in the front of their Bible, look at the territory of the 12 tribes. The Jews lie on all those maps. Go read the text. Judges 5.17. Tyre, along with other Phoenician cities, such as Arvad, Sidon, and Biblos, were under tribute to Assyria as early as the time of Asher Nasir Pal II, who presumably ruled from 883 to 859 BC, over a hundred years before the deportations at Samaria. Shalmanasar III, who ruled from 858 to 824 BC, also put Tyre, Sidon, and Biblos under tribute and mentions it in multiple inscriptions. Adadnarari III and Tiglath-Pileser III also had Tyre and Sidon under tribute. Sennacherib, who ruled from 704 to 681 BC, also had Tyre and Sidon under tribute. He mentions Ushu specifically. Ushu is the the name. It, it's the Assyrian name for the mainland part of Tyre as distinguished from the island city. Esarhaddon, who ruled Assyria from 680 to 669 BC, was still moving alien peoples into the ancient land of Israel, and evidently also removing Israelites. That's evident in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 8, and in Ezra chapter 4, verse 2. In the time of this king, the king of Tyre made a treaty with him, and was also rewarded rule over Philistia. That treaty is recorded on an ancient Near Eastern text relating to the Old Testament on page 533. This treaty was broken in the reign of his successor, Ashurbanipal, who ruled Assyria from 668 to 633 BC. Now I understand that this is after the deportations of the Israelites, which occurred from 742 to 676 BC. However, it's still important for us to understand the nature of the people in Tyre and Sidon. Here is a part of the text from an inscription of that king, Ashurbanipal. In my third campaign, I marched against Baal, B-A apostrophe I-L. Baal, king of Tyre. It seems to be a contraction for Baal is God or something along those lines. Who lives on an island amidst the sea because he did not heed my royal order and did not listen to my personal commands. I surrounded him with redoubts seized his communications, literally roads, on sea and land. I intercepted and made scarce their food supply and forced them to submit to my yoke. He brought his own daughter and the daughter, daughters of his brothers before me to do menial services. At the same time, he brought his son, Yahi Milky. Note that name. Yahi Milky, who had not yet crossed the sea to greet me as my slave. I received from him his daughter and the daughters of his brothers with great dowries. I had mercy upon him and returned 
to him the son, the offspring of his loins. Yakinlu, note that name, Yakinlu, king of Arvad, living also on an island, who had not submitted to any of the kings of my family, did now submit to my yoke and brought his daughter with a great dowry to Nineveh to do menial services. And he kissed my feet. We see the name, that's the end of my quote from the inscription. We see the name of Yahweh in the names Yahinoki, which seems to me to mean Yahweh is my king, and Yakinlu, which I couldn't quite determine. These names are prefixed with the same syllable that is usually rendered in the English translations of the Hebrew Bible and can be seen in the names Jehoshaphat or Jehoram. It is also recorded that many of their sons and fathers had the names of Baal, which is originally only a word meaning Lord, incorporated into their names as well. There was also a king of Ashdod in the time of Sargon II, who I mentioned previously tonight, named Yamani. The names of Yahweh and the Hebrew word for Lord affixed to the Phoenician kings of this period is not accidental and none of them were Jews. One thing that really amazes me about all this, yeah, you know, the Hittites, they're short, they're squat, they've got big hook noses. That's evident in the inscriptions. Their language is called by scholars. I, I hate to call them scholars. Their language is called by scholars today Indo-European. The Hittites spoke an Indo-European language. We see the Phoenician language from inscriptions. It's pretty plain. It was Hebrew. The Phoenician alphabet, it was Hebrew. They took that alphabet. These blonde, fair Phoenicians, as they're described by Euripides and Aeschylus, as they're described by Virgil, these blonde, fair Phoenicians, they took that alphabet, they took that language, they took it as far as Britain. They dropped it off in Spain, they dropped it off in Italy, they dropped it off in Greece. That alphabet pops up all over Europe. The Phoenician alphabet. The Hittites were using cuneiform. And the Jews will try to convince us that the, the, the Phoenicians spoke a Shemitic language. And the Jews will also try to convince us that these brown squat monsters in the desert scratching the fleas out of their ass, that they're Shemites. That's a lie. The Phoenicians were white, and they were Shemites. The Bible proves that they were Israel when we pay attention to it. The Hittites were anything but Shemites, and their language is Indo-European. Well, that's fine, because Hebrew is Indo-European too. It has all the features of an Indo-European language. It has inflections. You know, one argument, I've heard one really um, inane argument against Hebrew being an Indo-European language. And that's the fact that it had a dual, a dual number. A dual number noun. In, in English, we have singular nouns and we have plural nouns. Most Indo-European languages have singular nouns and plural nouns. And Hebrew has a dual. It, it's a different, it's a third form of a noun, and it refers to two of something. And I've seen that posited as proof that Hebrew is not an Indo-European language. Well, when... You read the Greek lexicon, 
when you read the Greek lexicon, you will find that early Greek also had dual number nouns. The Jews are full of it. The Jews are liars. When a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. I'm mentioning this, the, the, this, these things tonight because I'm, well, well, the people of Tyre and the Phoenicians are um, basically part of the topic here, right? And because I did the program on, on Monday on general European history, the settlement of Europe, and, and these are all things that I had thought of that I sort of wished I'd have mentioned Monday. But then again, Monday I didn't have four or six or eight hours to do a program on a topic that requires even much more than that. Here are the Tyrians, here in Amos. The Tyrians have promised punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. They were Israelites. The Philistines, while not a part of the brotherly covenant, would nevertheless be punished for the identical charge of carrying away the whole cap captive, the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. If the Tyrians and the Philistines were subject to the Assyrians during the deportations of Israel, as the inscriptions prove that they were, during the deportations of Israel and also most of Judah by the Assyrians, then both the Tyrians and the Philistines would have engaged, they would have supplied tribute armies to the Assyrian Empire for its military purposes, which is what empires do all the time, and the Assyrians did it all the time. And the Tyrians and the Philistines would have engaged in carrying the captivity of Israel and most of Judah away captive. Now, the Septuagint reading of Amos, chapter 1, verses 6 and 9, are on the surface even more publishing, I'm sorry, even more puzzling than the King James. In that version, the captivity is called the captivity of Solomon and the prisoners of Solomon. That's odd, right? Uh, I thought it was odd when I encountered it. I'm going to read the Septuagint version of Amos chapter 1, verse 6, and Amos chapter 1, verse 9. Verse 6. Thus saith Yahweh, I'll say Yahweh, it's curious in Greek, right? Thus saith Yahweh, for three sins of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away from them, because they took prisoners. The captivity of Solomon to shut them up into Edomia. End of verse 9. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away from it, because they shut up the prisoners of Solomon into Edomia, and remembered not the covenant of brethren, the brotherly covenant that we see in the AV translation. So when the King James Version from the Masoretic text simply has the word captivity in these passages, 
The Septuagint has captivity of Solomon or prisoners of Solomon. Now, I wondered about this. And the copy of Amos found among the Dead Sea Scrolls is so fragmented that it cannot improve our understanding of these passages or the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Neither does Josephus. Josephus, um, in his antiquities, following all of the historical portions of the, of the Old Testament, even of the prophets, but not following the prophetic literature because he really had no interest in it, being the author of the history, right? Elsewhere where it differs from the Masoretic text, the Septuagint has been found to be highly reliable in comparison to these other ancient records. And therefore it can't merely be discounted. Yet it is evident that no event in the historical portions of the Bible which describe the rule of Solomon may fit such a description as Amos provides here. However, there is one way that it can be imagined that the captives of the Assyrian captivity can be called the prisoners of Solomon. That is to understand the prayer which Solomon had made upon becoming king, which is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8. It is a long prayer, so here we will read only the pertinent portion from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 44. If thy people, this is a prayer Solomon made upon becoming king, if thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto Yahweh toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house that I have built for thy name, then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man who sins not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives into the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in a land whither they are carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. And so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions, wherein they have transgressed against thee, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they be thy people in thy inheritance, which thou broughtest forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron, that thine eyes may be open under the supplication of thy servant and under the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken to them in all the day that they call for unto thee. For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance 
as thou spakest by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Yahweh God. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto Yahweh, he arose from before the altar of Yahweh from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be Yahweh, that has given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. And then Solomon went off with 300 whores, right? What a shame. But there is no man that sins not, as Solomon had said. Amos may have indeed called the Assyrian captivity the prisoners of Solomon, because they were being taken captive for the very reason which we see in Solomon's prayer, a somewhat prophetic prayer. However, even earlier it was prophesied in Deuteronomy that these things would eventually happen as a result of national sin. From Deuteronomy chapter 28, the curses of disobedience, verses 15 and 25. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Yahweh shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, part of the national punishment for sin. is the loss of one's land and posterity. This removal began to transpire over 700 years before the diaspora of the so-called Jews. It is also evident that the prophet, calling the captives the prisoners of Solomon, is an assurance by Yahweh God that the prayer of Solomon would indeed be answered in regard to the captives that Yahweh would indeed not forget his people, but have compassion for them. Why Amos tells us that the Tyrians and Philistines delivered the captivity to Edom is another matter. And even though the children of Israel were taken out of the land on account of their sin, and the Philistines and the Tyrians and the Assyrians and all of the other people of the Assyrian armies had done that, that doesn't mean that the Philistines and the Tyrians get off the hook for doing wrong simply because they were acting as Yahweh's scourge. The Assyrian was the rod of Yahweh's anger who lifted himself up, who Yahweh used as a scourge against the children of Israel, and even he would be punished for lifting his hand against the children of Israel. Pretty complex issues. Why Amos tells us that the Tyrians and Philistines delivered the captivity to Edom when the Bible tells us that they were 
that the, those who were deported were brought to the cities of the Medes, that's another matter. In the inscriptions of Adad Narari III, who ruled from 810 to 783 BC, and Tiglath Pileser III, who ruled from 744 to 728 BC, Edom is listed among the tributaries to Assyria. In the inscriptions of Sennacherib from 704 to 681 BC, and in those of Esarhaddon from 680 to 669, and Ashurbanipal from 668 to 633, Edom was depicted among those nations who were willing tributaries and subjects of the Assyrians. During this period, Uprisings and revolts were recorded, which the Assyrians always extinguished in Damascus, in Tyre, in Sidon, in Philistia, in Egypt, and of course in Israel and in Judah. Lengthy inscriptions were made describing the campaigns of the various Assyrian kings, which nation and which nations subjected themselves willingly to the power of Assyria and which nation, nations were subjected by force after they had resisted. Evidently, Edom was always a willing subject of the Assyrians. Edom never revolted from Assyria. Because of this, it is plausible that Edom was rewarded after the breaking of the rebellious kingdoms of Israel and Judah and the deportations of much of their populations. In Ezekiel chapter 35, we find the following, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's not very long. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, And prophecy against it, Mount Seir was in the land of Edom. It was one of the first places in the land of Edom, inhabited by Esau himself. He dwelt there among the Horites. The Horites are the Hurrians of archaeology. The Horites were a branch of the Canaanites. He took Canaanite wives. His sons took Canaanite wives. And say unto it, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, because thou hast had a perpetual hatred and has shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity. In the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will prepare thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Sith, since thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, 
and cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with his slain man. In my hills and in my valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy city shall not return. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh. Because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries, these are a reference to Judah and to Israel. Thou hast said, those are the words which Yahweh God is attributing to the children of Edom. Because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there. Anybody who thinks that the Jews are Israel has obviously missed this passage. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will do even according to thine anger, and according to thine envy, which, what, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. And thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, and that I have heard all thy blasphemies, which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me, and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus saith Yahweh God, when the whole earth rejoices, I will make thee desolate. As thou didst rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so will I do unto thee. Thou shalt be desolate, O Mount Seir, and all Edomia, even all of it, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. In the ancient world, the armies of subject nations were always employed in maintaining the empire. It is evident that Edom supplied armies to their Assyrian overlords, as well as tribute. So did the Tyrians and Philistines. Therefore, the judgment against the Tyrians and Philistines was for assisting Edom, joined with Assyria. In their designs against Israel and Judah, which are spelled out here by Ezekiel. While very many of the Israelite of the Israelites and the people of Judah were taken captive and deported by the Assyrians, it could also be established that many were left behind. And from what we see in Ezekiel chapter thirty five, these surely would have been a prey for Edom who moved in and took over the land, being allied with the Assyrians, as Ezekiel has spelled out. Ezekiel writing, only about 50 or 60 years after the end of the Assyrian deportations of Israel and most of Judah, it also seems from Amos as though the Edomites were the driving force behind the slave trade in the ancient world. That's what I get from these passages. How fitting it is to see the Edomite Jews of today engaged in sex and chattel slavery wherever they are allowed to conduct such a business, and especially in their own private criminal enclave in modern Palestine. 
Canaanite Edomite Jews and Canaanite Edomite Arabs. That's right, not all of the Edomites became Jews. Pillaged the coasts of Europe looking for slaves throughout the Middle Ages. Actually, millions of Europeans over a 700-year period were taken as slaves. White Europeans were taken as slaves back to the Levant and back to Africa. by the Arabs and the Jews in the guise of Islam. Edomite Jews were also the principles behind the slave trade of both Negroes and, well, who cares about the Negroes, and Irishmen, millions of Irishmen, into the Caribbean and America in the 17th through the 19th centuries in concert with the Arabs. There's an entire untold story of white slavery. I think I had to fit that in. Amos chapter 1, verse 10. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Some of these prophecies. The, the result of some of these prophecies is clearer than others because the history is a lot better recorded. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel also prophesy against Tyre and in great length. Those prophecies are a subject which can take several other programs, which can consume several other programs. Tyre and Saddam rebelled several times against the Assyrian yoke, and they were always subdued. But the cities were never destroyed by the Assyrians. Ushu, which was the Assyrian name for the mainland portion of ancient Tyre, was later and totally destroyed by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel 29.18 says thus, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus for the service that he had served against it. He destroyed it. He flattened it. Evidently, there was not much booty to be gained. Tyre being a great seaport protected by the walls of the city Ostensibly, anything worth keeping was moved off of the mainland before the walls were breached. So Yahweh in Ezekiel 29.18 had rewarded Nebuchadnezzar for the destruction of Tyre by surrendering Egypt and the booty of Egypt to him also. In the Persian period, the island city of Tyre was subject to the Persians and fully cooperative in the Persian war against the Greeks. The Phoenicians were described by Herodotus as being the best amongst the sailors employed in the war. Tyre was finally destroyed by Alexander the Great, circa 330 BC. Not submitting to his yoke, he used the ruins of Ushu, which were not rebuilt, and filled in a rampart to connect the island to the mainland which was actually a distance of only a couple of hundred yards. In that manner, he was able to undermine the city's defenses and destroyed it, leaving nothing in fulfillment to the words of Ezekiel 26, verses 4 and 5, where Yahweh says, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. 
It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And it shall become a spoil to the nations. And that's exactly what happened. There wasn't a trace of the city left when Alexander the Great was done with it. Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Taman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Just like Cain. Although Cain was a bastard, he was judged primarily for hating Abel, his brother. The Edomites, being Canaanite bastards, are also judged first for the evil which they do, where Amos says, Because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Of course, every plant that Yahweh did not plant shall eventually be rooted up. However, bastards are judged for their evil first. Edom is found mentioned in inscriptions because their fruit can't be good. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit, period. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Make the tree good and its fruit is good. You will never get good fruit from a bad tree, according to the words of Christ. Edom is found mentioned in inscriptions as early as the 19th Egyptian dynasty. And I cite these things because all, all, that, that the inscriptions over and over and over again substantiate the stories of the Bible. We are not told in the inscriptions how Edom became tributary to the Assyrians, except that the Edomites appear to have subjected themselves willingly it is related that along with Israel, called at this time the Bet Qumriya, or the House of Omri, Tyre, Damascus, and other surrounding cities and nations, Edom also was indeed tributary to Adad Nerari III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 810 to 783 BC. I say presumably because the dates can always be off. And again, in the time of Tiglath Pileser III, who ruled from 744 to 727 BC, during the time when the deportations of the Israelites had begun, Edom was also listed as a faithful tributary in the reign of Sennacherib, during which time Philistia and Judah had revolted. And when there was the taking of the 46 fenced cities of Judah, mentioned in the inscriptions and in the Bible, and the failed siege of Jerusalem after, Senate, after Sennacherib had suppressed the revolt in Philistia. He put Jerusalem under siege and it failed and the story is told in the Bible. It's told differently in the inscriptions because Sennacherib had to save face and try to make a victory of it 
he boasted that he left Hezekiah sealed up like a bird in a cage. The Bible tells a fairly different story. Edom remained a willing tributary to Assyria in the reigns of Esarhaddon, 680-669 B.C., and Ashurbanipal, 668-633 B.C. These are all from, all my citations can be found in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, here in pages 281-301. Because Edom was always a willing tributary in the time of the Assyrian hegemony, <clears throat> there was probably no reason that we see the cities of Edom listed in the inscriptions, since indeed they were never besieged. Chronologically speaking, ignoring the physical order of the books as they are found in the Bible, and going by the times that they are written, the last mentions of Taman and Bozrah in the Old Testament are in Jeremiah chapter 49. There it says of Taman in verses 7 and 20, Concerning Edom, thus saith Yahweh of hosts, is wisdom no more in Taman? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? Therefore hear the counsel of Yahweh, that he has taken against Edom and his purposes, that he has purposed against the inhabitants of Taman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their habitations desolate with them. It also says of Bozrah, in verses 13 and 22. For I have sworn by myself, saith Yahweh, that Bozrah shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle, and spread his wings over Bozrah, and at that day shall the heat, I'm sorry, shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. Taman was the name of a place in Edom, but it was also the name of one of the chief families of the Edomites, Genesis 36.11. Bozrah is modern Busaira, located in what is now southern Jordan. When you think of the people of Jordan, you should think of the words of Yahweh. Bozrah shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. The people of Jordan today, the Arab bastards in Jordan today, so many fools in Christian identity want to make them Ishmaelites and save them, right? That's just crazy. The Arab bastards in Jordan today, they are the result of the prophecy against Bozrah. They are a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. Damn, why don't Christians read their Bibles? You can't embrace the Arabs. They're just as Canaanite as the Jews and just as cursed. It was the capital city of Edom, Bozrah, Genesis chapter 36, verses 31 through 33. Many fools, many even greater fools, take the text in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, 
to indicate, and, and we find this in all the John Hagee and, and, and Cyrus Schofield and James Bullinger type commentaries, this is really treachery. They take the text of Isaiah chapter 63, 1 through 6, to indicate that in the second advent of our Savior, that he shall come from Bozrah. That he will be an Edomite of Bozrah. That's an absolutely Jewish interpretation. And only a Jew could see salvation in Edom because the learned Jewish rabbis know damned well that to a great extent they are Edom. Here are the words of Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, and then we will evaluate them properly. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treads in the wine fat? Think of the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked. And there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Here it may be evident that in Isaiah, Bozrah is used prophetically as Jerusalem is used prophetically, Bozrah being the capital city of Edom, to represent the capitals of the Edomites wherever they happen to be. At the advent of Christ, here as it is described by Isaiah, Christ is depicted as having come from Bozrah with garments stained red with blood because his garments are stained red with the blood of the Edomites whom he has destroyed. That's what that represents. This passage in Isaiah describes the vengeance upon Edom. And it sure as hell does not describe salvation originating from Edom. The Edomites, called vessels of destruction by Paul, Romans chapter 9, are forever the people of Yahweh's wrath, and every Jew is part Edomite unless they've been adopted really recently. In the later Babylonian period, we again see the Edomites noted for contributing to the destruction of what was left of the kingdom of the people of God in Psalms and in 1 Esdras. Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9, explains that those who would destroy Edom are really only taking vengeance 
For when the Edomites gloried in destroying the temple of God, from verse 7, Psalm 137, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed. The Edomites, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed. Happy shall he be that rewards thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes thy little ones against the stones. How could the Edomite Jews be the daughter of Babylon if not in the works and in the religion found in their Babylonian Talmud? The assertion made in the psalm, corroborated in 1 Esdras 4.45, words directed at Cyrus, the king of Persia, by the scribe himself. Thou also hast vowed to build up the temple, which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. So we see the Edomites happily in league with all those whom Yahweh God would allow to be a scourge against the children of Israel. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes their little ones against the stones. Christians should really have nothing to do with Jews. Amos chapter 1, verse 13. Thus saith Yahweh God, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. With shouting, in the day of battle, with a tempest, in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith Yahweh. Rabbah is listed among the vassal states of Egypt in the days of Tutmos III substantiating the biblical stories concerning the Ammonites in the time of Joshua. Tutmos III was one of the last pharaohs before the Exodus. In a broken inscription from the reign of Shalmaneser III, who presumably ruled Assyria from 858 to 824 B.C., at least a thousand Ammonite soldiers, the inscription is broken, we can only read the thousand part, at least a thousand Ammonite soldiers were part of an opposition army allied with the Syrians against him, an army which he defeated. The Ammonites were admonished in Jeremiah for taking the land which once belonged to Gad, the land of Gilead. Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 3. Concerning the Ammonites, thus saith Yahweh, has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does their king inherit Gad and his people dwell in his cities? Therefore, behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will, I will cause an alarm of war to be heard in Rabbah of the Ammonites. And it shall be a desolate heap, and her daughters shall be burned with fire. Then shall Israel be an heir unto them. 
that were his heirs, saith Yahweh. Howl, O Heshbon, for I is spoiled. Cry, ye daughters of Ramah, gird you with sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro by the hedges. For their king shall go into captivity and his priests and his princes together. This land was taken from Israel by the Assyrians during the rule of Tiglath-Pileser III, the land of Gilead, who ruled from 744 to 727 B.C. And it is to this period we may look for the cause of Yahweh's wrath against Ammon, because they have ripped up the women with the child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. Since Gad would have no heirs at this time, many of the people having been deported by the Assyrians. Ammon is listed as a tributary to Assyria at this very time, and as a subject and a suppliant state to Sennacherib, who ruled from 704 to 681 BC, and also by later Assyrian kings. Like the Edomites, the Ammonites also evidently rejoiced and were glad to take part in the destruction of the children of Israel which we see in Ezekiel chapter 25, and I quote from verse 1. The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against the Ammonites, and prophecy against them. And say unto the Ammonites, Hear the word of Yahweh God. Thus saith Yahweh God, because thou said, Aha, against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Behold, therefore I will deliver thee to the men of the east for a possession, and they shall set their palaces in thee, and make their dwellings in thee, and they shall eat thy fruit, and they shall drink thy milk. And I will make Rabbah as a stable for camels, and the Ammonites a couching place for flocks. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh. For thus saith Yahweh God, because thou hast clapped thine hands and stamped with the feet and rejoiced in the heart with all thy despite against the land of Israel. Behold, therefore will I stretch out mine hand upon thee and will deliver thee for a spoil to the heathen. And I will cut thee off from the people and I will cause thee to perish out of the countries. I will destroy thee and thou shalt know that I am Yahweh. Think about that when you think about those Arabs over there in Palestine. Next week, we will commence with part three of this presentation with Amos chapter two. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night against the Paul Bashers. Part 11. Good night.